MacGyver Report Wisconsin this week. Whether it's interviewing the newsmakers of the day, reporting on the truly important stories that you just won't see in the mainstream media, or bringing you the latest cloak and dagger capital intrigue, the MacGyver Report is here to keep you in the know on all things Wisconsin. From our offices right here on Madison's Capitol Square, we bring you the stories that really matter to you, the taxpayer, and give you our incredibly expert analysis and unfaltering insight that you can only get, or so we hope, from Team MacGyver. And now, fueled by plenty of turkey, dressing, gravy, green bean casserole, and tryptophan. <laughs> Sorry, we got into the Thanksgiving feast early. Here's the MacGyver Report, Wisconsin This Week. I am Spiro Agnew, otherwise known <laughs> as Matt Kittle. Glad to have you along with us. Hey, I got that reference. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> sure. Heard of that guy. <laughs> and we've also got McIver Education Policy Analyst, Ola Lasowski. Hello, everybody. Communications Director, Chris Rochester. Happy Thanksgiving. And I'm Bill Osmolsky, McIver News Director. Now, the biggest story from last week is a federal government story. The House of Representatives passed a major tax reform bill on Thursday. Some of, the, some of the main highlights are it reduces the number of income tax brackets from seven to four. It doubles the standard deduction while eliminating most other itemized deductions. Republicans say it will save the average family over $1,100 a year, and it lowers the corporate tax rate from 35 to 20%. Now the bill is already in trouble in the Senate. Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin said he can't support it because big businesses get that new 20% rate, but most small businesses are taxed as individuals, and so they would be paying 35% or more. So starting with you, Matt, what is your overall take on this tax reform bill? Well, first and foremost, I can't get turkey gravy and dressing off of my mind. I'm all, all on Thanksgiving. And those are not deductible. Those are not deductible, <laughs> at least based on the postcard form that I've seen so far. Remember, we're going to put this on a postcard. So right. well, you can't deduct, and you cannot deduct your pounds that you put on from Thanksgiving, and that's no. my biggest problem. Where's the turkey lobby? <laughs> we need the turkey lobby here. You know, what's interesting to me, uh, Senator Ron Johnson told my colleagues over at iHeartRadio, News Talk 1130 WISN last week, and he said this to several of them, Jay Weber and, and Vicki McKenna and Dan O'Donnell, this week, that he really sees a carve-out for corporations, a, you know, a special giveaway in terms of the tax rates versus smaller businesses, particularly pass-through. That's his big issue. And he's very concerned, I am told, about the process in that leadership, Republican leadership in the Senate, has really kept the rank and file out of the process. He wants to get their attention. That's not to say he won't vote for a tax reform bill when it finally comes up, but the hope is that he gets a Mitch, a Mitch McConnell's attention, that he gets everybody in leadership gets their attention, and that they're able to sort this stuff out. That's the big issue right now for Ron Johnson. Okay. Uh, Chris, what strikes you about the uh, tax reform effort so far? Uh, what what strikes me about it is um, the the differences in the House and the Senate, not in the necessarily in the plans themselves, and there's plenty to, 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 talk, to talk about there, but what is driving Republican opposition in the House versus in the Senate? We saw, I think it was 13 Republicans peeled away and voted against 
the House version. Yeah. Uh, most, if not all of them, were from Republicans from blue states where the state and local tax deduction or removing that um, would impact their constituents, which of course that's a deduction that kind of rewards local governments for, and, and state governments for, um, for overspending and gives them kind of a pass. Uh, Representative Peter King from New York has been outspoken on this one. He's a pretty solid conservative guy, but he's got constituents to represent. But meanwhile, in the Senate, you have people like Ron Johnson with his concerns over the pass-through rate versus the corporate rate. Um, others that say it doesn't go far enough. And, and Susan Collins, who's concerned, uh, Republican of Maine, is concerned about including the repeal of the individual mandate as part of the tax reform. So the the Senate, which is the Senate Republicans, I think they're typically from lower tax states. You don't have the geographic diversity that you have in the House. So there's a whole, and that drives, I think, a lot of the, the, the reasons why the, there's all these differences between the two houses and why the GOP's uh, uh, opposing it and why it seems like it's not going through that smoothly. Now, Ola, you're our education expert, mm -hmm. and one of the things that we've seen a lot of attention online about has been uh, grad students who um, work as TAs, a lot of universities will give them free tuition as part of their compensation. Now, apparently now they are currently, they are not tax on that, but under this bill, at least from what we've heard online, they would be. So what's your take on that? Yeah, so, you know, this is something that I've been seeing a lot of uh, in my news feed, especially among, you know, my younger friends. I've got a lot of buddies looking at going back to school or they're in grad school right now, all of that. And, you know, I have to say it's concerning and you have to think about the unintended consequences of what this would look like. Um, my understanding right now is that when TAs or other grad students receive grants for tuition, it's not counted as taxable income because, of course, they never see that money. They just don't get that beautiful, hefty bill that I'm still paying years and years later. <laughs> but the point is, they just don't see that money. So one change that this would make is that this uh, or this tax reform bill would make that uh, money part of their taxable income effectively making a lot of those people who are living the grad life, life on a shoestring budget, eating, you know, Campbell's soup for dinner, could be taxed in a way higher tax bracket. I personally think that's a problem, but as we were talking about a, a little bit earlier, it seems like it could be a really simple thing to fix. I mean, this is just a definition and statute. All you have to do is make it so that that money is seen as a grant or scholarship in law, and then it's no longer taxable income, right? Well, they don't even need to do it in law. It could just be the university just changing their clerical process on sure. how they do it. Yeah. But it's another carve-out. I mean, that, that's what it is. I mean, if you want to do this, do it across the board. Give people a break all over the place, not just on college campuses. Sure. You know what it's like yeah. served, serving in the military and what was taxable and what wasn't. That's right. I... Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm practicing some empathy here because, you know, my first reaction is not to be too sympathetic because when the Army paid back my student loans as part of my contracts, um, the IRS informed me that even though it was just the Department of Defense calling over the Department of Education to, you know, wipe that off, the IRS called me and said, yes, that's taxable income. Uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> There's one other portion of this that I want to go back to Chris talked about. 
Judy Collins and or Susan Collins. Uh, she sees life from both sides now. <laughs> that would be something for our older listeners. And also send in the clowns is another one too. Judy Collins <laughs> is going to vote against anything that has any free market or conservative response to it anyway. Now she's all upset. This was the thing that we found out last week. It was great for anybody who wanted to see the dismantling of Obamacare. Obamacare. Just can't spit it out, Stuck in there. Yeah, along with the uh, the, the gravy. Um, but anybody who wants to see the repeal of Obamacare, um, this looked promising, right? The repeal of the individual mandate. Right. Wow. And then all of a sudden, the Senate giveth and the Senate taketh away because then we figure out, well, we can't just do that and leave that as it is. Now we have to put in the subsidies and the incentives for the insurance companies, put the thing back that Obama put in extra constitutionally, he broke the Constitution doing it, and now he's going to have, now we're going to have Congress, the Senate, put this in anyway. So <clears throat> you have basically, what, a wash in the movement to get rid of Obamacare? You have all this, this rhetoric again, once again, of the Republicans want to take away health care from so you know X number of people. Let's be clear about the the elimination of the individual mandate. This is a tax on poor people because they can't afford insurance. Right. How unfair and ridiculous is that? And almost, I would say, almost all Americans of any income agree that that's just the, the most ridiculous thing is to tax someone or find someone because they can't afford something. And by the way, if they repeal the individual mandate as part of the, the tax package, they are not taking insurance away from anybody. Those people are going to choose. That's what that's that's what this is all about. They're, they're going, they would choose not to have health insurance. But, but again, if Obamacare is about uh, affordable, accessible health care, right? Isn't that what it's all about? Yeah. Right. Um, to finish up on tax reform, Matt, could you just tell us a little bit about the price tag with this and the long-term impact? Yeah, I mean, really, what you have to examine here is you have, what, $1.4 trillion that this would cost, so to speak, in lower federal revenue. The Republican budget only allows lawmakers to add $1.5 trillion to the debt during that time. So what do you got, 100 billion dollars to play around with. The biggest problem out of all of this, I think we would all agree, is that none of this deals with the big problem that we'll always be facing us, the size and scope of government, how right. much these programs, these initiatives cost. Right. Nobody wants to cut spending along with offering tax breaks. You've got to have both. And, and that's a problem both in the House and the Senate version. Nope. Sounds good. And let's take a break from Washington. Let's bring it back home to Wisconsin, Thank you. where the Department of Instruction is releasing school district performance reports this week. And McIver's education analyst, Ola Lasowski, has been looking into this. And Ola, this year, DPI says everyone's a winner. <laughs> that's We're all winners! Just like Oprah. You get a car. You get a car. Ooh. Now, that's right. So, big news today in the realm of K-12 education. Of course, that's the release of the 2016-17 report cards for individual schools and school districts. Now, before I dig into some of these numbers, I'll say that report cards are meant to be a way for parents to be able to easily assess the performance of their local school districts. So you would think that they would be pretty straightforward. 
you would think. Uh, <laughs> DPI examines over 2,000 public schools and more than 250 private schools in these report cards. Most of the schools are graded on a five-star scale, one star meaning that they failed to meet expectations, and five meaning that they significantly exceeded expectations. Wait, wait so no letter grades? No letter mm -hmm. grades. Too mean. We got five stars. See, I like the stars because it's a lot more subjective than actual <laughs> letter grades. Like, That's right. Everybody knows what an A is and what an F is. I think they but, should give scratch and sniff stickers. Well, you know, <laughs> it really does smell uh, like a banana well, split. Well, you see, I really like the, the, the star system, though, because, you know, it's like, on, you know, like when I'm on Netflix, mm -hmm. I'll see a movie that I really like, but it only has one star. So, I mean, maybe there's a school out there that only has one star, and, you know, maybe a lot of people think it stinks, but maybe I should give it a chance. It could be the star for you, Billy. It, it, it really that could. Is exactly I feel the same way, but you know all of, the, all of this is pretty much in the eye of the beholder, and that's what VPI really drives home here. Exactly. I, my example for you is I, I stayed at a hotel at a Motel 6 in Philadelphia. It was supposedly a four-star establishment, but it was nothing more than an exaggerated crime scene. So much of this is subject to interpretation, is it not? Exactly. So one place you see this right away it comes out is uh, this year's report card shows that zero school districts are failing we've done it everyone <laughs> that's down from five that's down from five failing districts last year however at the same time uh, this year 117 schools were dubbed failing up from 99 failing last year so hmm. even though one part of the release says that zero school districts overall are failing there are still just under 50,000 students attending failing schools hmm. uh, of course about half of those are in MPS uh, Milwaukee Public Schools so it's it's an interesting data uh, piece of data to look at is I suppose one way to put it uh, on the other side 44 districts got the top score of five stars that's 10 fewer districts than last year 361 schools got five stars that's 32 more than last year and captures about 16 percent of the student population in the state uh, or just over 135,000 students so uh, good for them how looking much, how much of this has to do with politics uh, it sounds like there's a lot of double speak going on. Yeah, now I ask this in all seriousness because we have we don't just have a DPI director who's trying to shore up his position as DPI director superintendent. Right. We have Tony Evers, superintendent, who is running for governor. That's right. Uh, one person's failing school is another person's success, obviously. But in the realm of politics, what does all this mean for Tony Evers running for uh, governor of the state of Wisconsin? It's a message that is not hard to make, and that message is, listen, I'm the one who's been up close with all of this for however many years, and so I'm the person you can trust to do even better and, and move it forward and take it running and, and really improve education uh, significantly in this state. I think that a lot of people are going to buy that argument. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll see how it goes for him, right? But the fact of the matter is... The statewide achievement score is just 66 out of 100 points, okay, 66. Uh, MPS, which got the lowest achievement score out of any school district, though, of course, it's not failing, it just meets, quote unquote, few expectations, uh, got 56 out of 100 points. Um, so there's a couple different ways to look at this, right? 
Well, 56%, that's usually not a one star on the report card. Hey, hey, two stars, all right, two stars. So It's not going to give you a pizza scratch and sniff sticker, I can tell you that right now, or a super job. All right, so at the end of the day, you know, we have a couple different uh, takeaways from this research. The first, official designations do not always reflect reality. Um, I'm sure that we're going to see plenty of hurrah press releases from different officials here and there about uh, the fact that there are zero failing school districts. But again, that doesn't change the fact that there are 50,000 students attending those failing schools. If those students were their own town, it would be the 13th largest town in the state, wow. uh, right between the size of Sheboygan and the city of La Crosse. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really good perspective that on that. Yeah, so it's, it's not an insignificant number of kids, no. that's for sure. So, you know, it's almost what press release isn't written as a result of these designations. Because sure. they're not designated failing, but if they were, it could be a mailer. It could be a, mm -hmm. uh, an advertisement in a political campaign. I got to tell you that they need a designated driver for this stuff. That's <laughs> pumping this stuff out. So now, how does this report line up with some of the criticism that Wisconsin has been facing lately? Like, for example, the supposed teacher shortage or choice schools are stealing public funding. Right. So this data does release doesn't really examine those issues, especially school funding. Uh, but what I will say is that there is a teacher shortage nationwide. We know this. The Federal Department of Education knows this. They keep data and statistics on this every single year. It's a problem in all 50 states. Um, and it has been going on for a while, and it doesn't end at Wisconsin's border. To say that it does, quite frankly, is misleading and inaccurate. This is something that schools all around the country are grappling with, and it's a serious problem. Uh, now, the second part of that question um, is that choice schools receive money to educate kids that public schools are not educating. It really is that simple. This was an interesting data release, uh, if you're a nerd like me again, because we finally have report uh, cards for students in the private school choice programs. That's a new thing this year. Um, unfortunately, just over half of the choice schools that got report cards were not officially rated on that five-star rating because DPI needs two years of data to figure those scores. But out of the private choice schools that were rated, uh, about 11% got five stars, 16% uh, got four stars, and 23% got one star. So of course there are still issues there, uh, though you know it's no Milwaukee Public Schools where 33, that's right, 33% of these schools are failing. At least oh. my Motel 6 came with a continental breakfast. That's right. So stay tuned uh, for through the rest of this week and next week we'll have a ton of coverage on this very important data release, uh, you know, deeper dives into Racine, which made big news this summer. Uh, charter students, for example, that's another interesting uh, uh, piece of data. They did really well uh, in this release. So uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned. There, the, this is, I just want to throw in there, this is a very important conversation and I had a <clears throat> conversation with a CNN reporter uh, last week uh, there's a, a report that tries to link you know act 10 with so-called declining student performance so this conversation and Ola's reporting on student benchmark success the benchmarks the key benchmark numbers is very important because it we need to you know we need to get it out there that you know, the sky is not falling in Wisconsin. Sure. And, you know, as far as the teacher shortage, rural schools, rural communities 
all across the country are facing shortages in practically every profession. That's not act. And it has, That's the reality of the national landscape of, it, of public education. Exactly. Right. All right. So we started off with the federal government, then uh, we took a look at the state level, and now we're going to move into local politics. The city of Madison believes it's time for every business and resident to have access to broadband internet. They're using taxpayer funds to pay for this, and the price tag keeps climbing. Matt Kittle has more. This is the MacGyver News Minute. Here's Matt Kittle. The Declaration of Independence doesn't promise life, liberty, and the pursuit of accessible, affordable broadband. But the leaders of liberal Madison believe broadband is a basic right. To that end, Mayor Paul Soglin and the Common Council have launched a pilot program using taxpayer money to connect a few low-income neighborhoods. It appears to be the path to ubiquitous taxpayer-subsidized Internet. Ubiquitous? in the left's lexicon, translates into wasteful government boondoggle. Like most big government initiatives, this one has already been hit by some hard realities. It's costly, and its program purveyors have found that neighborhoods are connected and with exclusive agreements. Taxpayers around the state should be very wary of the Madison Ubiquitous Fiber Project. While broadband may be desirable in the digital age, it's not a right, certainly not one that taxpayers should fund. For the MacGyver News Minute, I'm Matt Kittle. For more free market news, log on to MacGyverInstitute.com. Matt, since the city of Madison is already providing free computers to low-income residents, doesn't it make sense to give them broadband connections too? Well, it makes sense in the land of uh, Paul Soglin. Uh, Paul Soglin land. This is the guy, again, remember, who gave the keys of the city of Madison to Fidel Castro. So none of this should come as a surprise. The idea of the liberal Madison Common Council and the liberal mayor of Madison, Paul Soglin, is broadband should be a basic human right. As we have reported at MacGyver News Service, of course, the Declaration clearly pointed that out, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat. Don't forget that good Wi-Fi connection. Don't forget For the sure. Wi-Fi connection. Yeah. And I'm not forgetting the Wi-Fi connection, Ola, because that is exactly what we found in Madison, like so many other places. Madison is one of the best connected cities in the world when it comes to broadband and internet. Uh, a study, a consultant, put together for the city of Madison, at a very high cost, by the way, to its taxpayers, found that the vast majority of the city in the 90% range was connected, and you need only to go to your local school district, your library, to any restaurant or business in downtown Madison or anywhere in the city, really, and you will have free Wi-Fi service. So this push to not only create what is known as a, you know, a pilot program to bring broadband into low-income houses, low-income apartment complexes and neighborhoods across the city, is trying to get to the broader point from Paul Soglin and the Liberal City Council, and that is broadband for all, which their consultant report pointed out could cost taxpayers in excess of $160 million. Now, one of the interesting aspects to all this is there is another nearby community, Sun Prairie, just right next door, that has tried this before. You know, over 20 years ago, the city of Sun Prairie decided they were going to put in high-speed Internet. And over the course of 20 years, they are now able to service 10% of the city. Yeah. So 
this past summer, they signed a deal. They sold the existing infrastructure to a private company who says that they will be able to now cover 90% of the city within the next two years, just going to show leave it to the professionals sometimes. Leave it to the free market. I mean, this is clearly what Sun Prairie wrought. This is clearly what Sun Prairie shows us. And Sun Prairie is by far not alone. There are all kinds of failed uh, community broadband utilities services across this country that's just been abject failures. You know, the pilot program for this test of broadband for all in Madison was supposed to reach somewhere in the vicinity of 1,200 people, customers in low-income neighborhoods, four of them. They can't even get into one neighborhood because they figured out something along the way they should have known going in, which was that these neighborhoods had exclusive agreements from private sector providers of broadband already. How they were they supposed the to know that? I don't know. Read the, read the tea leaves. <laughs> this is the government we're talking the free about. Market. Yeah, well, that's right. It's the government we're talking about. So anything involving the free market should be uh, eschewed and, and put off to the side. No, bad free market. Well, it turns out that we have uh, Charter or Spectrum now coming in and the same liberals on the Common Council and in governmental politics who were talking about broadband for all uh, a couple of months ago were at the side of Spectrum and Charter applauding the private sector provider for bringing uh, accessible, affordable internet service into low-income neighborhoods with pricing structures. They have the infrastructure there. They have the ability to do this. Government does not. And when government gets involved, we see what can happen. Now, one other point I would make on this story. Affordable, accessible something or other. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a little, li little bit the familiar. The Affordable yeah. Internet Act? The, the Affordable Internet Act. The Affordable Broadband Act. Or as I like to call it, Soglin Care. It should be as successful as the Affordable Care just, Act. Just one last thing, uh, because I'm going to pretend I didn't hear the number, but you know, as a means to get you to repeat it, what was the whole the, the cost again of this this grand scheme? Yeah, it was somewhere in the vicinity of 150 to 160 million dollars. Let that sink in. Mm -hmm. And all of that, so that you know, you can get ten dollar. Uh, speed, uh, broadband speed that is lower than the actual acceptable right. level right now. So not only do you have the issue of it's not working, it's not working at a speed that consumers want, no matter what income level they're in. And uh, don't miss the McIver News Minute uh, live on News Talk 1130 WISN every Tuesday and Thursday. All right, now it's time to take a look at the week ahead, and hopefully for everyone listening, it will be a short and relaxing week because Thursday is Thanksgiving. And by the way, here at the McIver Institute, we are all thankful that the state budget debate is over. Yes. Here, here. Now talk about your trip to Fan. That was pretty much <laughs> it, wasn't it? Yeah. Now a lot of people get Friday off, but apparently that doesn't mean a break from terrible state policy. Chris. Tell us about the minimum markup law. Yes, we get no break from terrible state policy. First of all, uh, a sincere a happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hopefully everyone has some quality family time. Uh, if you're traveling, be if sure to... If you have a quality family. If, if you don't, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. There's no help for you. I'm, I'm not judging anyone else's family. Uh, say, but if you're traveling, be sure to stay safe. And if you're hunting, 
which I don't. So by the time you're listening to this, I might, you might not even be hunting anymore. I don't know. But safe, safe hunting. And speaking of hunting, there will be bargain hunting. And people who are bargain hunting will be victim to the dumb Wisconsin law called the Minimum Markup Law, a.k.a. the Unfair Sales Act. This is the, if you're not familiar with this law, um, where the heck have you been? Uh, th- this is the Depression Era law that um, basically makes deal- really good deals illegal in Wisconsin. If you're a retailer, you can't sell your merchandise below cost. There's a 3% markup on wholesale for alcohol, tobacco, and gas. And um, it really hits consumers in, in, in the, at the retail level because there's a 6% markup for alcohol and tobacco and a 9.18% markup on gas. So if you want to drive to your family's Thanksgiving, uh, you're going to pay that. You're going to get hit with a markup on on the gasoline. If you want to have a cig on your way over to your family's house, uh, or maybe maybe after you're done with your family, you're going to pay a markup on that. What do and you then if, spend Thanksgiving at ATS? <laughs> Yeah, that's a great, that should be a convenience store, not a government agency, by the way. Understood. But, um, and, and, you know, if you're going to have brandy old fashions or whatever at your, at your family get together, or again, after, if you have a particular kind of family, uh, you're going <laughs> to get, you're going to get nailed with the, the markup on that. So, um, this is obviously a, a law that's got to go, but uh, Wisconsin consumers don't like it. In 2015, there was a poll that found when an informed, when the poll pollster informed the respondent, 76%. Uh, said this this is a law that's got to go well one of the interesting things about this too is we've been you know reviewing the black friday circulars this week at the mciver institute and we have found that it doesn't look like um wisconsin stores are going to be uh, uh taking a break from these deals so if you are going out there first of so first of all this means that this law isn't necessarily consistently enforced no and, and secondly, right. if you take advantage of some of these amazing deals, you know, like your 15 cent computer at, uh, for a doorbuster Friday morning, um, you might be an accessory. <laughs> that's right. You're an accessory to a crime. And that's the ridiculous nature of this law. It really does. It makes people, not, not that anybody is going to be put in a paddock, well, who knows, uh, given what's going on in the, in the, you know, in accordance with this law. But it's just ridiculous. And we have states on a daily basis, not just Black Friday, right next to us, where you can save every day on the, the sorts of consumer products that you just mentioned, Chris. And we, well, and as far as we go back to gasoline, we saw this price war in Michigan where people were paying yes. a matter of 40 or 50 or 60 cents a gallon. You're never going to have that in Wisconsin. But, you know, Bill talked about the, uh, the, the doorbuster deals. I mean, this is a law that gets regu- routinely violated by um, by retailers and and you know they're trying to keep up with uh, with other states and they know that the the state price police are are not are not out there enforcing it what's the point of having a law that you don't enforce and consumers are perpetually being violated by this law i mean that's the bottom line and it needs to change we're going to uh coming up next week have a little profile piece with uh, State Representative Dale Coenga, who talks about we may be open for business in Wisconsin, but we're not always open for the free market. And he lays the blame at conservatives who should be better at at that. Right, and he was one of the ones who uh, wanted to do something with a minimum markup law, at least on gasoline. You saw a previous you know, repeal effort that went nowhere uh, in April. Um, 
Senator Vukmir, uh, Senator uh, Craig, and then Representatives Ott and Murphy were uh, behind a law that, or a bill that tried to scale back the minimum markup law as well. And that's met the same fate as other legislation. So this is, for some reason in the Capitol, this issue is like touching an electrified rail. You just, they don't go near it, and it's frustrating if you're a consumer, because the Wisconsin consumer is ultimately the victim here. Now, it's not this week, but looking out a couple weeks ahead, we have some special events lined up. And Chris, could you tell, tell us a little bit about those? Absolutely. Uh, we have one Guy Benson coming to Wisconsin, a McIver Institute. and a heck Wisconsin, of a guy. Heck of a guy. Wisconsin yeah, heck of a guy, absolutely. Um, Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty is teaming up uh, with McIver to uh, bring Guy Benson, uh, who we all know from uh, as a commentator on Fox News and the political editor of townhall.com. And he's also the co-author of the book End of Discussion with Mary Catherine Hamm. A very, very good book, by the way. And they, they've recently updated the book for... I believe it came out in 2015 originally, thereabouts. And, uh, you know, thing the book is about the free speech crisis in this country. And you can't talk honestly about what your beliefs are uh, if you're a conservative without getting shut down uh, or shouted down by, by the left. And things have gotten so bad in the short time since the book initially was published, they've got to do a reboot. And <laughs> I've, listened, I've listened to it on Audible like three times, I think I'm on now. I recommend it highly. And if you want to uh, come see Guy Benson, uh, he will be in Madison for a luncheon Wednesday, December 6th, 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the Monona Terrace. And you can find tickets on Eventbrite or go to Facebook or email info at mciverinstitute.com for, for your reservation. And it's free. I'm looking forward to that Wonderful. because I, I had the um, good pleasure of being on a panel discussion back in late 2015, just after the book was released with Guy Benson, and uh, just a, a really fascinating guy. And, and the stories that are in this book, not just on college campuses, but everywhere, and I can only imagine what's happened in the last two years since you know we really started talking about this issue, but uh, uh, they're, they're both entertaining and frightening. Right. It's got that mix of, of entertainment and fear factor involved of just what's really going on and the abuses against the First Amendment these days. Right. And the topic has just gotten so much more relevant in this state in the past, not just the past year, but the past couple of weeks. Yeah. yeah, true. Well, thanks, guys. I know that we're all looking forward to that. Um, and let's go ahead and just look back for a couple minutes now, and let's talk about some underreported stories uh, from this past week. Matt, why don't you take us off? Well, we had a story at MacGyver, and it took a look at a bureaucrat who was a longtime bureaucrat in the state up until a couple of years ago. She is, I like to call her the, um, the daughter of Earth Day, uh, Tia Nelson, who is the daughter of Gaylord Nelson, who at one time was the governor of Wisconsin, better known as a U.S. senator from Wisconsin who brought the world Earth Day. And she has been cast in this father's legacy where you know she's the green warrior out there she's been billed as a you know a green martyr basically by the mainstream accomplice media in general she's a climate change aggressive climate change uh, activist and she did some of that while she was serving on this little known board called the Board of Commissioners of Public Lands. Nobody Say that three times. No, it's, and even if you identify it as the BCPL, it'll put you to sleep. 
Anyway, we found out. We, we got some information. And, and, you know, taxpayers, you can look, too. There's a very uh, valuable source out there. It's open book. It was created in 2012. You can go back to 2008 and see any expenditure from any state department. We found that Miss Nelson, Tia Nelson, was uh, spent a total of, within four years, $26,000, just shy of that, on speech writing, uh, someone, a ghost writer, basically, to write her speeches and do her articles that she wanted published for the BCPL in publications nobody has ever heard of, logging this month or whatever it is, uh, basically to do her homework. Miss Nelson, who I contacted, said, well, you know, look at the governor's office, look at the DOA, look at the Department of Natural Resources. They have full-time staffs for uh, public relations. Why don't we? And the answer to that, of course, is they're a nine-member agency that has not a great deal to do and not a great deal to publish. It's a question to the taxpayers, and if it's a question for the taxpayers, it doesn't get a lot of coverage, unfortunately. Well, you know, maybe the staff at the BCPL just doesn't aren't very good at writing. Uh, what hit me was, I was being sarcastic about that, what hit me was the $2,000 for the one article for the, yes. I, I, I forget the name of the publication, but that's a pretty good gig if you can get it. 2000 bucks, but it came with high glossy uh, <laughs> graphs or something like that. And you would hope. biennial reports that were created, what agency has some other entity do its biennial reports for? Although I'm told that it did win Best Improved Biennial Report. <laughs> so, once again, another scratch and sniff sticker. Awesome. Uh, well, um, I think this was underreported, except by us, of course. We have a great video at uh, mckyberinstitute.com. Uh, it was a breath of fresh air, actually, on Thursday on the UW-Madison campus when it comes to you know, intelligent discourse, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, if you like chanting and shouting well, people down, it wasn't a very good Nobody good moment goes for to you. college for this. For the intellectual for the discourse. God, don't watch C-SPAN. Just don't have any polysyllabic words. That's why some some people prefer it. But um, uh, Jordan Peterson gave a, a very interesting lecture. And for those not familiar with him, he's a psychologist and a professor at the University of Toronto. Um, and his research and lectures against political correctness and uh, ideological uh, indoctrination have become famous. He has 12 million YouTube views and he's quite popular, but he's also infamous if you're on the left because they, they really revile the guy. Um, he's intensely anti-communist, uh, anti-authoritarian. He's, if you want to get a little philosophical about it, he's an individualist and, ob and an objectivist, uh, which puts him right in the crosshairs of the anything goes crowd, the subjectivist, you know. Um, but what was really refreshing about it was there was not a bunch of chanting protesters outside, which would have been fine if there were, but there weren't this time. Nobody tried blocking the stage. It was a peaceful, peaceful event. And students lined up at the end to ask their questions. And one uh, young uh, student asked, he said, <laughs> Professor Peterson had just got done lambasting an op-ed that appeared in one of the college papers saying that he hides behind free speech in order to spread a message of hate. Well, this, this kid said, I kind of feel bad for having written that. And the place started laughing. Well, he actually wrote it. And, um, and he said, well, I'm, I'm serious. But he proceeded to ask a very thoughtful intellectual question, and he got a very intellectual response back. You know, after taking a lot of flack from Professor Peterson about the article, mm -hmm. he said these, 
these sorts of things are a dime a dozen, these, these articles talking about hate and hiding behind free speech. But what was really interesting was the reaction of the crowd because Professor Peterson said he really admired him, the kid, for standing up, taking the heat, and then asking a really good question. And the crowd, which was standing room only, gave him a big round of applause. And that's the kind of mutual respect and intellectual discourse you should be having on college well, what a campuses. difference a year makes, right, Ola? I mean, it was in November of last year. You have Ben Shapiro at the University of Wisconsin where you have left-wing students, you know, screaming and, and chanting and actually physically trying to shut down a conservative speaker. That's right. We can actually have a conversation. It's pretty cool stuff. Yeah, really bringing it back to basics. And, here. of course, uh, I'd be remiss if I failed to mention that what happened in that intervening time was these this new effort this focused by the legislature and the regents on protecting free speech on campuses. Right, that's right. All right, here's my most underreported story of the week, and it's explosive. <laughs> Wisconsin Democrats, Democrats, openly praised one of President Donald Trump's policy publicly. <laughs> no way. No publicly way. in committee. In fact, they want to implement it here in Wisconsin. And there was wow. no irony, no sarcasm. They even used the president's name and said they don't usually agree with him. That sounds like fake news to me. Yeah. yeah it does. So what, what policy could this possibly be? Well, protectionist trade policy. Oh, well, that they, they, right. they, they really like the whole made in America mm -hmm. idea. So they want it so the state government has to buy American-made products whenever possible. Yeah, that sounds about right. If the if the Democrats and the and Trump can ever agree on anything, it's protectionist mm -hmm. trade. So. You think they're going for the uh, rural Wisconsin vote that voted for Trump at all? Maybe a little bit. <laughs> I think there might be some sounds political motivation involved. You know, Tammy Baldwin, of course, was right. all over that at a federal level. Well, that that far left agenda isn't you know apparently resonating throughout the state right yeah, now. That seems to be the case. We have talked on this program uh, a great deal over the last couple of weeks about Obamacare and the failure that it is. Um, one thing is clear to me, and that is if we are going to get out of this mess made by the government, this mess of Obamacare and the health care debacle that it is and where we're at now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take the free market to do it. Well, interestingly enough, State Representative Joe Sanfilippo, a Republican from West Dallas, and Senator Chris Kapinga, a Republican from Delafield have proposed legislation that would do just that, drive the free marketplace into areas like direct primary care. Direct primary care, you pay a fee. It's not health insurance. It is uh, health care, and it could literally lead to savings of 15, 20, 25 percent in the marketplace. It's transparent now the lawmakers want to bring this to the medical assistance program where our budget, of course, every two years is built around. That's where we start that massive amount of money in medical assistance. Direct primary care could be applied to that in a kind of pilot program. We talked to State Representative Joe Sanfilippo about that on News Talk 1130 WISN. Under the direct care model, Doctors eschew insurance contracts and deal directly with their patients. Many charge a monthly membership for routine visits and drugs. They list their prices for procedures up front, prices that are often significantly lower than the standard insurance-driven model. But let's make this clear up front. What this legislation hopes to accomplish is 
first and foremost, this is not health insurance. This is health care, and there is a big difference, and it's a big regulatory difference, and your legislation, as I read it, spells that out. Yeah, that's one of the, the most important uh, features of this bill is, is it, it clarifies the fact that if, if a doctor and an individual enter into a contract for direct primary care, that is not insurance coverage. So you have to almost think of it kind of like a maintenance contract, right? If you, you buy a cell phone or some electronic equipment, they always want to sell you a maintenance uh, 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 contract or something on that order. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what this is for health. And so what it does is it says that for a set monthly fee, this uh, doctor or the provider is going to take care of all of the person's primary care health needs and then some. I mean, they also get into screening and and testing. Uh, You know, they can do prescriptions at greatly reduced costs. But what you have is is now you take away the uh, high deductible and co-pays that oftentimes under conventional insurance people have to pay. And certainly people under Obamacare, we have seen that, you know, they have insurance through Obamacare, but you can kind of put insurance in quotations because it's so expensive that they don't use it. The deductibles and the co-pays are so high that the insurance really never kicks in. With direct primary care, you pay this set monthly fee but then when you go see your primary care provider, you don't pay any out-of-pocket deductible mm-hmm. or copay expenses. It's all covered in the fee. And as you mentioned in the setup, one, another great aspect of it is it brings complete transparency to the process because you know up front if you do need any types of uh, other additional procedures, you know what those costs are as opposed to just going in uh, for a procedure and then waiting for the bills to show up. And then once the bills show up, you need another procedure for your heart. <laughs> you read the bills a lot. Of exactly, times, exactly. You know, and uh, this really takes takes that away. And it, and it, and it, it makes the health care being provided a much more personal level, right? Because now you've got just the doctor and the patient making the decisions. You're getting the insurance companies out of the way. You're getting the government out of the way. And you're you're almost getting like to the old days, right, where the doctor knew his patients inside and out and, and just this personal relationship. And we see that under the direct primary care model. You get you're you're back to that direct primary or you're back to that personal relationship because the doctor isn't spending more time filling out insurance forms or Medicaid forms than he is actually speaking with the patient. And that's yes. very critical in this in this whole procedure. Yeah, right now, the way the system is set up, and it has been for, for many years, and it just gets more and more this way, is that you have a, you know, you have a triangle relationship or square and more involved because you have regulators and you have insurance companies, you have HMOs, you have maintenance programs, and those are the people who are ultimately making the decisions, not you and your physician. We lose that so much in the system, and it's gotten so much worse after the failed promise of if you like your health plan, you can keep your health. If you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. Obviously, that's not the case. The expense gets worse under Obamacare because we are still seeing in the taxpayer-funded Medicaid Badger Care program, uh, you know, folks under or under Obamacare 
going into their, their first point of contact with a physician is the emergency room, which is the most expensive portion of medicine or among the most expensive portion of medicine. It keeps driving up those costs. This would, would uh, cut into those expenses, if I'm reading this correctly. Right. So uh, Senator Capping and I have also looked at the amount of emergency room usage that we see in, you know, especially in our Medicaid program, because those are the dollars that we watch very closely. And we, we know that we spend so much money. In fact, over $50 million was spent last year for um, our Badger Care people who would show up in the emergency room more than seven times in the year. And so what that tells us is, and DHS is even telling us, look, these folks are using the emergency room for primary care. Mm -hmm. We know the emergency room is the most expensive place to go. And plus, in the emergency room, you're kind of always like, you know, putting a Band-Aid on something. You're not really solving the problem. So it isn't even the best care. You know, for example, somebody who maybe has a, a diabetic condition, they don't take care of the diabetes properly. They end up going into the emergency room. Very expensive care, but the emergency room is able to stabilize the person but really isn't getting the person set so that they keep their diabetes under control and stops them from going to the emergency room in the first place. So under the direct primary care model, you hook up a physician directly with this individual. They know the individual. They know the conditions. They, they monitor that individually closely and work with them to make sure the diabetes is controlled and maintained so that you don't end up in the emergency room and running up those big sky-high bills and having, uh, you know, detrimental health as a result. I think it is very clear that this will not be well-received by the insurance industry. Have you heard from the insurance industry so far? If you haven't, I'm sure that you will. Yeah, I suspect just based on other bills that I've worked on and put out and and the uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction that we've seen from the health insurance industry is they they tend to get, you know, sometimes they're very threatened over proposals like this, and they think that it's uh, people are kind of infringing on their territory. Or their well, they territory. sure did. They sure did hate self-insurance at the state level. I mean, they, they made that very, very clear. Yeah, and, and, you know, and we had, uh, you know, another proposal that we worked on to get into the budget that dealt with uh, a similar type of a program but helped keep people out of the emergency room for expensive care, and, and they didn't like that one and had a very bad reaction as well. So, But on the surface, if they take the time, rather than just do a knee-jerk reaction, but really take the time to look at these programs, these programs are very beneficial, not only for the individual who has better health and for the state who's ultimately paying the bill, but also for the insurance company as well, because the insurance companies, even in our managed care model, they still bear risk with a person's cost of health care. So to the extent that we can control somebody's cost of their health care and put them in a better or a healthier state, that is advantageous to the insurance company. And so I'm hoping that they just take a deep breath and rather than just fly off the deep end right away like they did in the past on some of our proposals, they take a look at this and, and work together with us to say, hey, we think that there's something here. I mean, there's a reason 23 other states have allowed this form mm-hmm. of health care, direct primary care, and you can see the results are, are dramatic in most cases. And again, this isn't only about saving money, which is very important, but it's, it's also about giving people 
a healthier lifestyle, a better quality of life, and helping them get back to that more personal relationship with their doctor so that they feel comfortable in their uh, care that's available to them. Well, we're seeing the success of it already. In your district, I know that there is a health care provider by the name of Solstice. They're already providing this direct primary care model. I talked to a gentleman by the name of Dr. Kevin Tadich in in the Wausau area, Wisconsin. Um, You know, he's been providing this at a significant cost savings, as I understand it, uh, on the orthopedic surgery side. I know that this is something that is pretty well established in the western part of the state. So I guess this is the, the, the final question. We're already doing that. Why do we need a law to say that we can do that and we can do it in a certain way? So what we need to do for both state purposes and really federal purposes, and and there is some similar legislation at the federal level, we need to clarify that this type of a program, direct primary care, is health coverage. It is not health insurance. And that's very important for a multitude of reasons, but, but, uh, you know, one of which is that if you have a health savings account, you know, you cannot use health savings account money to pay for health insurance. However, by clarifying and making it straight that direct primary care is not insurance, it's coverage, you then could pay your monthly premiums out of the, out of your uh, HSA. There is legislation at the federal level to make sure that on the federal basis that that's taken care of, but we want to clarify that here at the state level as well. And And I think that once you see... Uh, passage of this bill, then you're going to just see an explosion of uh, doctors wanting to provide direct primary care and working with their patients. You know, doctors spend a lot of time going to medical school and going through their their residency, not because they want to spend eight hours a day or 10 hours a day filling out insurance forms and paperwork in their office. They want to take care of their patients. But we have a system that is so top-heavy with paperwork that, you know, that's what you go and see your doctor. He may be in, in the room with you for, for five minutes or ten minutes only, and he's spending another half an hour filling out all the forms he has to fill out between, you know, health insurance companies or if they're a badger care person for Medicaid. And, you know, that's not allowing them to provide what they should be doing, which is providing care to the patient in the first place. Yeah. That is the advantage that direct primary care can offer. That's how yeah. these doctors can uh, can give you transparent uh, in very low rates from what uh, you know you pay in other health systems. State Representative Joe Sanfilippo, um, we've been talking about this for a few weeks. MacGyver broke this story uh, a few weeks back. This could actually be in the undercovered story because I think this could really have a major impact on truly bending the cost curve. No, sounds great. Um, so here at McIver, we talk a lot about how government shouldn't get to pick winners and losers because we believe people should succeed or fail based on their own merits. Now, we're going to take a moment right now and see where the chips fell last week and who came away with a win and who went home with a loss. And I will get the ball rolling. I think the UW Regents emerged as the big winners last week. We've already talked about Jordan Peterson, but... The intervening factor that happened between the big disruptions of the Ben Shapiro event last year and the nice, orderly, civil, intellectual debate with Jordan Peterson this year was the Regents adopted a policy that protects free speech and punishes those students who would seek to block others' rights of free speech. 
You know, and it was cited, too, that particular policy, which was approved by every board member of the Board of Regents except for Tony Evers. I think that's worth noting. Uh, but it was cited, and Chris, you reported on it, with the, the turning point incident at the University of uh, Wisconsin, Stevens Point, where you had student government trying to shut down a young conservative group from establishing itself on campus, a local chapter of Turning Point USA, and within the reversal of that decision by UW-Stevens Point administration, they specifically cited the Board of Regents policy. Right, the Vice Chancellor, uh, Al Thompson, told the student government to reconsider this at the following week's meeting, which was November 16th. They didn't, so the very next day the Chancellor, citing this rule unilaterally overturned the, 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 the student government. So unfortunately, we had to have an adult step in. All right, now, there were a lot of people throughout the world of politics, entertainment, and journalism who had a really bad week last oh, week. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm gonna say the big loss for the week goes to Al Franken, because gosh darn it, people don't like him. His friends at Saturday Night Live are making fun of him. He gave all this money to his friend Tammy Baldwin for a campaign, and now she's calling for him to be investigated. So, you know, that's a tough week when you find out that all these people around you that you thought were your friends aren't aren't really uh, going to stand by you. I would say it's going to be a tough week or a tough road ahead as well for the Senate Ethics Committee, and I'll tell you why that is. Because this is a body that does absolutely nothing. This is a, an entity that exists in name only. It had never does anything against its own members. Now they're in a position where they really will have to take seriously, I think, allegations against uh, all of these uh, political actors. Well, maybe we need a Senate committee on the Senate's committee. ethics committee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> an oversight committee, yeah. as it were. Ethics committee oversight. Yeah, yeah. so uh, mine's similar to Billy's over here. I'm just going to go ahead and say, stay on the same topic. Bad week, creeps of all parties. You're going down, mm -hmm. fellas. Mm -hmm. um. And there are some folks in Washington, <laughs> D.C. who are very frightened right now. Don't you think so? Right. That's right. I, I heard a friend say something like, whoa, if we, if we get rid of everybody who's been uh, uh, accused of doing something inappropriate or uh, uncouth and, and kick them all out of Congress, we won't have a Congress well, anymore. Yeah, well, exactly. And see, the so that I say, okay. It's so, not a bad thing. So the assumption we're making, though, on expelling all of these members is that there will be a majority of Congress who has not <laughs> committed <laughs> these offenses and will vote to yes. expel them. Yeah, there exactly. will be anybody left. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And on the uh, other side of the same coin, good week, women everywhere who are being heard on these issues, finally. That's a good thing. Yep, good call. Uh, good week this week, uh, blue-collar wage earners. This is kind of getting um, ignored or brushed under the rug, but uh, let's look at the, fa the five years after 2009. Wages only grew for uh, blue-collar jobs by 8.7%. This is according to an article by The Economist. Prices went up 9.5%, though. Uh, but in the past couple years, that situation has changed a lot. And in a, a 2017, up through the third quarter, many blue-collar occupations uh, have seen a 4% growth in income in just that, that, that period of time. So uh, wages are on the rebound right now for, you know, those folks who voted for President Trump. They felt uh, left behind. And one note on that is that demand uh, for American products overseas is up. So trade is a good thing and it's helping people out. Bad week, I was gonna talk about 
the more about the college, you know, the Stevens Point and this, that, and the other thing. We've gone over that. I will, I, I, I will say it was a bad week for the UW lacrosse student who was the Democrat of Wisconsin oh, yeah. vice chair. She resigned her position. It's not been a good week for her. And um, the, the real bad week, though, I'll, I'll say this, was, was the Packers. It was not a good game. Five turnovers, no, no, three no, no, interceptions. No, no, no. The, no, the problem was that the Packers didn't get the memo. There was actually a football game on Sunday, but only one team showed up. Right. They thought right. they were playing on Monday night. Oh. No, the, the the student you're talking about, who is part of the Democratic Party at Lacrosse, Sarah Semrad. Yes, and the backstory there, of course, is she got on Twitter, as so many folks decide to do, and decided to say that she hated all fill in the blank with the expletive white men. Uh, or something to that nature. The bigger issue, though, for her was that she openly admitted on her same twi right. Twitter feed that she was destroying pro-life literature on the University of Wisconsin lacrosse campus. She has disappeared from Twitter. She has disappeared from Democratic leadership. That, that could be a free speech violation there. Well, there you go. Yeah, the plot thickens. Can I jump in with mine? It's a winner and loser all in one. In the same person. Oh, I'm this telling you, we we're fine. This, this, we're streamlining regulation. We're streamlining winner and good week, bad week. And it's the UCLA basketball players, oh, the God. trio mm. of morons that decided it was a good idea to shoplift expensive designer eyewear in China, where you can go to jail for 10 years for doing that. <laughs> Now their bad week was when they got caught on camera doing this and faced being left behind, which they were. Their good week began when President Trump showed up for a uh, series of discussions with the Chinese leaders and worked along with other officials in the Trump administration to get these three guys back home and uh, out of harm's way in China. Uh, so good week, bad week, and of course, like everything else involving Trump and Twitter, uh, it, <laughs> it got a, a little worse for the wear after that, and now you have a battle between one of the players' fathers and Trump, and stay tuned, the story continues. Uh, I think we need to educate people more on what communism really is, because and you what Twitter is. Don't steal stuff in a communist country no. because, you know, they, they, I think communist regimes have done a far worse than put people in jail for well, Remember them. the kid? Remember the kid? This was years ago. No, that, this, this was like a year ago, so it should be, you know, a fresh lesson. No, no, this one goes back. Oh. This was in uh, somewhere in Southeast Asia. The kid uh, did something, a minor offense would be considered here. He got caned. Remember the caning oh, kid? Yeah, that is. Oh, cool. I do remember yeah, that. Yeah, got whooped up real good by by the cane for doing what? And again, that, that was a light sentence. That too. was a light <laughs> sentence. He could have faced death for this sort of thing. So yes, that is always a good lesson. Know your audience when you're <laughs> shoplifting. All right. So thank you everyone again for listening to the McIver Report. And we hope we didn't bore you to sleep unless, of course, you were looking for some help nodding off. <laughs> and as always, for the latest information, research, and analysis, please visit our website, www.mckyberinstitute.com. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. We'll see you next week.